Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Uh, a couple weeks ago we looked at Matthew chapter 1. Uh, and kind of in reverse order, we finished chapter 1. And then last week we looked at the beginning of of chapter 1, and we kind of walked through the genealogy of Jesus. Now, I want to say, if you get over to Luke chapter 3, which you're not, you're not getting to today, uh, but in Luke chapter 3, you will find an additional genealogy. Uh, one works forward and one works backward. And in Luke chapter 3, a lot of times people will say that it's a, an inconsistency or some kind of conflict with Scripture because most of the names don't match up in Jesus' genealogy. And the truth of the matter is very simple. Matthew is written, as we talked a couple weeks ago, from Joseph's perspective. Luke is written from Mary's perspective. And if you see it that way, you can see the way that it's worded much, much differently because the Jews would have tracked the bloodline through Joseph, the, the patriarch, and the Gentiles, the Greeks, as Luke was writing to, would have tracked that blood through the mother, Mary. And so Luke writes to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, and he is expressing to them Jesus' connection. And if you look at, and again, I'm not asking you to because you'll get lost in those genealogies today while, while we're sharing. You can read it later. But you will see that there's another who's who's list there. And the reason that I want to bring that up today is because if you're studying Jesus' genealogy through his earthly father, Joseph, you will find that Jesus is descended from King David. Jesus is also descended from Abraham. If you go over to Luke chapter 3, you will see that through a different line, Jesus is descended from David and Abraham, and Luke tracks his bloodline all the way back to to uh, Adam himself. And the reason that that's important is because whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy. If you say, well, yeah, through Mary, but not through Joseph. No, Jesus is the descendant of King David, who the prophecy was given that there will be a king, and he will sit on the throne, and of his kingdom there will be no end, is fulfilled through Joseph. It is also fulfilled through Mary. I mean, the symmetry is beautiful. We won't have time to get into a whole lot of that. But this is Luke's record of Mary's responses to the angels. We've looked at Joseph's, so let's, let's look at, at Mary's. It's known as the Magnificat. Now, it is Mary's song preserved. Mary was there when she sang it. No doubt she had conversations about what God... There's witnesses here as well. Not that we have to have those because... It is preserved in Scripture. We know that it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And all Scripture is given to us for our instruction and our edification. And so it is important for us as we look at, at what happens to Mary and what Mary says, we are not called to be like Mary. We are called to be like Jesus. And so the goal isn't what did Mary do and how can we do that. The goal is what does Mary declare about Jesus and how can we be empowered by him. So Mary's song, actually, and, and we'll get there in a moment. It's going to be in verse 46 is where it begins. Uh, that's not where we'll begin reading. But 
It extends this melody that is sung by God's people, and it goes back for, for really 4,000 years. So let's begin reading in verse uh, 26, and uh, we'll, we'll skip around just a little bit, but uh, keep the continuity of the narrative. In verse 26, it begins, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But as you might imagine, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, let me give you a really quick, quick framework, uh, the context. Mary is somewhere between 12 and 18 years old. If we want to camp out around 16, we couldn't be too far from the truth. She is betrothed to the love of her life, Joseph. They both honor and respect each other. And they are looking forward to a wedding day. And their, their hopes and their aspirations are their, this their wedding day. And out of nowhere comes this angel, catches Mary unaware, and tells her, that everything that she has ever thought, everything that she has ever hoped for, was much smaller than the plans that he had for her. And it completely upended everything. It upended her name. It upended her reputation. It upended her plans. She doesn't even hear, consider, what is Joseph going to think? She hears how God wants to use her, and everything else is less. Very quickly, Mary is able to say, may it be as you have said. Does the angel explain everything and give her every detail? No, just the confidence that God is at work in her life. And so she goes and she meets her older relative, Elizabeth, who is, as the angel said, barren. 
She has been unable to have children. She and her husband, Zechariah, we won't get into all of that story today, but he is a priest who is currently off doing his duty at the temple. And the angel comes to him and tells him what's going to happen. We will talk about that in just a few moments. But Mary goes to visit Elizabeth. No doubt Mary is, and I, we can't say this for certain, but there is no doubt that Mary, for me, there is no doubt that Mary is going not for confirmation, but for community. We're kind of in this together. Now we know that the angel has appeared to Elizabeth too. I want to share my story with you, and I want to hear your story. How do we know that? Because when Mary shows up, in fact, when the angel told John the Baptist, or told Zechariah, that he was going to have a son named John, he told him that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And we read that and we're like, oh yeah, well that's great. No, 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 this doesn't happen yet. Filled with the Holy Spirit at this point is an incredible statement. So when Mary shows up at Elizabeth's place, and when Elizabeth comes to the door, Mary greets her, it says that she, she feels John the Baptist filled with the Spirit, and he rejoices. She's rejoicing in this moment. She senses it. Verse 46. As soon as this baby in the womb leaped for joy, Mary said, I like, there's a, a, a sort of a pause here, but I like Elizabeth going, whoo. And Mary just immediately saying these words. My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned home. Now this anticipation that Mary is receiving, again, as I said, it goes back about 4,000 years, all the way back to Adam in Genesis 3.15, for from the woman's seed I will bring forth, and they will be in enmity with one another, the man's seed and the woman's seed, and ultimately the seed of woman will crush the serpent's head. And, and so this is the first telling of the gospel story. And so now we know, as again we said a couple of weeks ago, that the Messiah will be born from mankind. God is going to send a redeemer from man. It begins to narrow in scope by the time we get to Abraham. And now we know that God's redeemer for mankind is going to come through the Jewish people. And time after time, generation after generation, it deepens and it narrows until now we know which family and now we know which daughter, which person the Messiah will be born from. So from Abraham's lineage came Israel 
And God freed them from Egyptian slavery, destined them to have a promised one, David, who was going to establish a kingdom, and, he, and eventually that would establish an eternal divine kingdom, bringing justice and mercy and peace for all. But these precursors to God's kingdom, Adam's or, and Abraham's and David's, all of their legacies suffered due to disobedience. It caused their kingdoms to, to fall due to sin. And this led to hardship every time man's answer led to hardship, led to uh, slavery in Egypt, to Babylon, and now Rome. And the overarching influence of sin and death over the whole world. And the prophets continued to predict this new king, who would directly challenge not issues of mankind, but the issue, sin and death. And Isaiah describes this figure as a suffering servant, a wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the prince of peace, the long-awaited hope for the world. Some scholars say that Jesus fulfilled somewhere in the neighborhood of 300 prophecies from the Old Testament. Some say that there's not nearly as many of that and prophecies can be interpreted differently and depending on what you need to, be see, to see. But if 300 is the upper tier, let me tell you, if, if Jesus, and we know that he many, many more than this, but one person fulfilling eight prophecies, some say as many as 300. But one in eight is somewhere around the neighborhood of 1 to 10 to the 17th power. That's 100 quadrillion chances that Jesus will fulfill eight prophecies of the Old Testament. So Mary is intimately familiar with this Old Testament narrative of the Messiah coming and when he does, people will know. And she recognized that as her people's story. She and all of God's people. Scripture was the encompassing narrative of their life. And in this incredible twist, out of nowhere, this unassuming, you wouldn't pick her off the street, you wouldn't say there's something special about her, perhaps. The angel taps her on the shoulder and says, it's you. And this era of waiting has ended. And her response is to sing a song. So Mary's song proves to us that she understood Israel's history and she understood her future. Now, when you go over to the first part of chapter 1 of Luke, you do see Zechariah's story there. And there are some uh, Hebrew parallels to these two stories. For instance, Zechariah, when he goes into the holy place, the angel comes to him as well and tells him, hey, your son, you're going to have a son and uh, he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. This is not, I mean, it's news to Zechariah, but by the time Mary finds out about it, somebody else already has this confirmation. But he says, how can I know? But Mary says, how can this be? In other words, how can it, just, just, just how can it be? But for Zechariah, it's much more personal. When she looks out at the horizon line of the future, you know what Mary sees? She sees the possibility of fulfilled promises 
when Zechariah looks out at the horizon, he can't see it anymore. This is a really dark day for Israel. Most people, even the religious, are kind of giving up hope. Uh, there's not a lot of light going on in Israel. But Mary, this, let's assume, 16-year-old girl, sees hope. But when the priest sees it, not to demean him, I'm not sure we, any of us would. He was doubtful. But Mary's song that she sings, like the, 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 uh, the moment that she is reflecting, her song is filled with Scripture. In fact, it's a harmony of Scripture, and that's really what I want us to focus on today. She is shocked beyond belief. She is stirred. She is shaken. She is worried a little uh, uh, initially, but she's not anxious, and she's not afraid. Why? Because her mind is saturated in her story, and her story is Scripture. She could believe the impossible, it was the first thing off her lips. In fact, we see a lot of similarities between Mary's song here and Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 1. Very similar. And perhaps Mary is even intentionally copying, copying Hannah. So there's going to be a lot of references to the Old Testament, and we'll do that, especially to the Psalms, which is a song of hymns. It would make sense. But this tells us that the more that we ingest of Scripture the more we can memorize it in our hearts, hiding it in our hearts, becoming familiar with it. We find that when we are praying or when we are emoting, when we are responding, it is Scripture that comes to the forefront. That's what Mary is teaching us. It's a very natural thing. When Mary doesn't know what to say or how to respond or how to emote, it is Scripture that comes forth. She begins by saying, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. If you've been around very, very often, you, you know um, I say this just so we can get it into our, into our thinking. But being, being three, created as three things, our body and our, our, our soul and our spirit, the spirit being the eternal part of us, Mary here is saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. My soul, my, in the Greek, suke, my emotions, my will my, my who, who I am not in the flesh, my natural self without the flesh on, right? My, my soul, my emotions magnifies the Lord. It takes place in the heart, which is the seat of emotion. My ambition and my desires magnify the Lord. It's the only thing I want to do is to make God big. And that's where she starts. I want us to understand this because this is the epitome of what true worship is. It takes place in the heart. It doesn't have to trickle down there to it. And my spirit, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Because God is big inside of me. It, is, it empowers my spirit to be joyful. An angel tapping her on the shoulder, disrupting the rest of her life. And her emotion is joy. One of the things that Scripture warns about more than once is the danger of rendering lip service to the Lord. The danger of just making confessions without hearts being engaged or you know, just going through rote worship. Often in the Old Testament, God rebukes His people for just going through the motions. That's what we're talking about here. It's where we say the words and we confess with our mouths, but our hearts 
remain far from him. It reminds me of Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, because if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and perhaps one of the biggest ands in Scripture, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If there is one thing that I can say to the church today, it's mere confession does not save you. It's when that confession comes from your heart. That's where salvation takes place. And then out the mouth. Not confess it until I believe it. But ruminating on what God is doing in us so that our worship isn't working ourselves into a feeling. So often that's what the modern church has turned worship into is got to say it over and over and over until I begin to feel something and now I'm ready to receive. Not for Mary. That magnification of God took place before she spoke. You say, Pastor, you're making way too much of this. I don't think so. Because this happens over and over in Scripture where the part of us that is transformed is in here. It's not about our confession. Our confession is the proof of what happens in here. So I'm telling you, listen. If God isn't magnified in your soul, your confession is just lip service. If your confession is just lip service, your life is going to be filled with question, confusion, anxiety, inconsistency, but not joy. Not joy. Because joy is a byproduct of a, of a spirit that is right because the soul has magnified the Lord. Say, Pastor, it's just a song. She says, my soul has been saturated by a sense of God and by his presence and by his mercy. From the deepest part of my being, I am stirred by him. I want to exalt him. It's the only thing I can do. The first thing that she does when she encounters her older relative who has a similar story is not say, tell me about it. The first thing she says is, let me tell you what is happening in me right now. Theologians have paid attention to the last couple of words from that second line, my Savior. What does it mean? In fact, Thomas Aquinas, for example, believed that Mary could not possibly be sinless, as Catholics suppose, because she confessed in this hymn her need for a Savior. And that may be correct. In fact, I believe that it is, but it's not the complete inference from the text because the word to save and the word salvation in the Bible can mean something other than the ultimate salvation like from eternal consequences from sins he does save us eternally he is our savior forever but he is also our savior in the day to day he saves us from ourselves he saves us from our trouble he is our savior he will be my savior he has been my Savior. He is my Savior. Anytime God rescues His people and He spares them from calamity, can express this. And 
This message just changed Mary's trajectory like no other message or news possibly could. Like I said a minute ago, family and marriage and reputation, all of that's changed in a moment. And her focus remains on the promise, not herself. She stays humble rather than puffed up. I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's why God chose her. But you can imagine a scenario where for 4,000 years, humanity's been waiting, and all of a sudden, an angel appears to a 16-year-old and says, hey, you got what it takes. I have put favor on you. And there might be a little bit of a, that's right. Maybe not in the first century, but the 21st, perhaps. But I believe that Mary gives us clues that she didn't have eternity in mind when she says, now I'm not saying that Mary was sinless, not by a long shot. But Mary was referring to the rescue from a calamity of being rescued from her humiliation. She's not going to be just another forgotten person, a person of insignificance. She specifies in her next line the sense that God has been merciful to her already, merciful in his saving her. Regardless of how Mary used the word, she recognizes that Jesus is superior to her. She recognizes her place and his place. It's funny to me that, that David is given a promise that he will have a son who will sit on his throne. And so in a lot of ways... Jesus is the son of David. He's actually called that from time to time. People call out from the crowd, son of David. David calls him the Lord, his Lord. Even in the New Testament, you will find that not only is Jesus the son of David, he is the savior of David. Mary is doing the same thing. He is my son, but he is my savior. There is a now and not yet component. There is a now and yet component in Mary's song. God regards the lowly. Mary, you know, she speaks initially of being overwhelmed by the tenderness of God. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I think that she has numbers six in mind here. This is the high priestly prayer you know, the Lord bless you and keep you, make his face shine, where? On you and be gracious to you and the Lord turn his, anybody know? Face upon you and give you peace. Two different times in this passage, we have God making his face shine up us, turning his face toward us. If you've ever noticed, uh, when you're out in a, in, a, in a crowd or maybe at, anywhere you are, if you know someone and you're passing them and you see them, but you're not, you're not speaking to them, you just see them, if you have commonality with them, you do this. Guys especially. Watch guys. Guys are really bad about it. But if you don't know them, you nod down. It's involuntary. It happens around the world. It is inside of us. If you know somebody and you want there to be some agreement or relationship, you're not up. If you don't know them and you don't want to talk, you're not down. True story. 
It just ruins your relationships. Now, if I ever see you out and you nod down, <laughs> when you're driving down the road in a truck and somebody you know passes you, when you got your cowboy hat on and you walk into a room, you, you don't know people, you tip your hat and put your head down. It's true. But what's even worse is when you think that you're so much better than somebody else that you actually don't respond at all. You see them, but you don't respond at all. Oftentimes, you even turn away from them. One of the rules in, Isaac and I were in Scotland several years ago, and you read the rules for servants in the home of the owner or the Lord or the noble or whoever. One of the rules is, is if you're ever in the room and the owner comes in, you do not acknowledge them. You are a piece of equipment. Do not turn your face toward them. In recent years, we have read more and more because there are no secrets that you get online and, uh, and you can read whatever, everybody's looking for something. And in Hollywood, this seems to be a big deal. You hear this, I won't call any names, but these movie stars who when they're on set, they want no one to address them. Or they have people work for them, but they're not allowed to address them. Don't look at me, don't acknowledge me, don't talk to me. Or perhaps you're at Walmart and you see someone you know and you very quickly go down a different aisle so you do not have to talk to them. I am really, really sad that you just laughed at that. Okay. So when Isaiah writes of the suffering servant that we've talked about, Isaiah 53, and, and he describes the pain that is prophesied of Jesus that is coming. He says of us, we hid, he says, we hid, as it were, our faces from him. It's when Jesus was in his lowly estate, you know what we did? We went down a different aisle. He had no comeliness that we should desire him or to look at him. Our Lord himself experienced this phenomenon of people too proud to even look upon his countenance because they held him in such contempt. And what, what you do when you say that is, and I know that you're going to push back on this a little bit, but when you do this, you're saying, I am so much better than you. And yet when God chooses to announce this to the this coming of the Redeemer, who does he come to? The downtrodden, the marginalized, the powerless. And as a representation of that class of people, this young woman being raised in a patriarchal society, lacking status, no prospects, bearing the most common name of, of her generation, Mary, she says he has shown favor to the lowly, raising the humble. What she is saying is, when God could pick anybody, he looked at me. He, he allowed his face to shine upon me. The humble, the downtrodden, the nobody, the, oh, that's Mary. The ones that everybody else turns away from. 
And she says, I can't believe it. My soul wants to exalt him infinitely. My spirit is rejoicing because he has regarded my low estate. He looked at me. And so when you wonder, does God care? Is God listening? Does God see me? Does he understand? Does he know? What does God think of me? He looks at you. That's what he thinks. He looks at you. How do I know? Because he looked at Mary and he regarded her lowly estate. That should warm your heart to know when you question, does God care? The very, the, he came this way to prove it. To prove it. He wasn't a Moses that was raised in a palace. No, it's Jesus who was the carpenter's son. When Mary talks about all the things that Jesus is going to do, this son, I want you to notice, if you go back and read it, we won't, we're not going to read it again, but she speaks in the past tense. When she talks about Jesus, she speaks in the past tense. As though all these events have already occurred, demonstrating this confidence that she has a faith she has a then, now, and later concept. She's connecting the past with the future. She understands that what is happening in her, God has been setting up for millennia. It's what faith does, right? She's just creating continuity. The child that she carries is God's Messiah. He is God's promise. He is God incarnate. Look at what he's done. Look at what he has done. All the things that God has done. And now look what he will do on earth through me, through him. I think that Mary is processing this. We received it already as a nation before. We've seen what God can do. Now we are receiving it as individuals through this Messiah who will dwell among us. But the whole creation is going to experience it for all eternity. What is it? What, that, what is it that we can expect? He is mighty. He is holy. He is merciful. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. That's what the angel told Mary. Holy is his name. And his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. Mary mentions three things specifically about Jesus in that he is mighty, he is holy, and he is merciful. Let's break those down quickly. The one who has recognized Mary is the Almighty One of all creation. The one who possesses all power in heaven and earth. He's the one that can create the universe with the single word, let there be. And there was creative power in His voice. With Him, all things are possible. This angel, Gabriel, mentioned God's mighty power to Mary when He first came to her and you know she was confounded by the she, how can this be since I've not known a man I mean wait a minute I am a virgin I'm a teenage girl how can it be that I become pregnant with God seeing that I have not been with a man and you know what the answer is 
Mary, with God, all things are possible. Okay. <laughs> okay. She said, Gabriel says, Mary, it'll be because of the power of the most high God, the Almighty will overshadow you. With him, all things are possible. There's a lot more going on here, though. The Greek word translated even in the Old Testament Greek translation, the Greek word translated overshadow, episkiazo. It means when God used some visible presence in the Old Testament, like at the tabernacle when the cloud filled and the cloud overshadowed. Whenever that word is used, when God manifests in a tangible and a real visible way his presence, he overshadows the thing. And so when Mary hears this, no doubt she understands that she is becoming to be the dwelling place of the one who will dwell among us. Inside of her is the physical manifestation of God's presence. We might also think of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. God's powerful presence will rest upon Mary in life. It's the same thing that happens within us. It's with your heart you believe and with your mouth you confess. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit overshadows us and indwells us. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Mary's song should be our song as well. He is the Holy One. So often in our culture we speak of God... We do so in such meaningless terms. I remember growing up, you didn't hear God's name much. Now, if I might, hear God's name all the time, even among God's people. Flippantly throwing His name around like it has no power. Or even, even Christians who will say, you know, the man upstairs... If you can demean the name of God, you will demean the almighty power of God in your life. You will slowly reduce his ability to do the impossible. As long as we allow God just to be some energy, some cosmic force, or as the Disney Channel says, the universe, sickening that we would demean God in such a way to reduce His glory and His holiness. You know, there's almost no difference in the way we reference God than the way animists reflect Him in the way we communicate about Him. Like He's just some entity. Why do we do that? But as long as we can depersonalize him, make him some impersonal force of vague, amorphous power, no, no, no distinguishing characteristics, we have nothing to worry about. Use his name all day or some variation of his name. He who is mighty, he has done great things for me. And holy is his name. I just wonder if we were to go back 
to referencing him as holy. We're going to get there in just a second. He's not just mighty, not just some raw force or brute power. He is the holy power, a holy might, and holy strength. And his mercy is on all those who fear him. So let's let's go ahead and hit that. Right? So how else could we exist in the presence of a holy one except by his mercy? That's all over the Old Testament. It's God's mercy that allows us to draw near to Him. But, but listen, I, I want to be very care, I want to be very clear here. Is God merciful? Well, Mary declares He is merciful. Is God merciful? How else could we ever come before Him, or how could He ever approach us if not for His mercy? Is God merciful? Before you answer this next question, don't answer it. Is God's mercy infinite? No, it is not. Not according to Mary. What does she say? She says that mercy, God is merciful to whom? Those who fear Him. He's not willy-nilly with His mercy. To those who fear Him. Him. He does not extend mercy to everyone. Not everyone receives the mercy of a forgiving God. Some, in the final analysis, are going to receive justice, not mercy. Mercy belongs to those who reverence His holiness. Do you want His mercy or His justice? Fearing God isn't about being scared like some, like you would with a thief or anxiety. It's about reverence, awe, and, and adoration. It's about not seeing his, the man upstairs that owes us some favor. It is about recognizing that when we think about him, we can come boldly, but we need to come humbly before the Lord God. He is not like us. He is, he is mighty. He is holy, and he is merciful to those who treat him such. The godless throughout Scripture are regarded as those who have no fear of God. The world is filled with those who have no fear of God. And in fact, it is even creeping into the church of Jesus Christ where God's people begin to have no fear of God, just buddying up to Him like He owes us something. Let me tell you something, if that's the view that you have of God... It's not going to begin here for you. Not spiritually. You might be filled with yourself. But if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you will recognize the Almighty, Holy, and receive His mercy. God's mercy is on everyone who fear Him. But there is the contingency from generation to generation. This is not something that's new. Mary is in a long list of names that go on and on from Adam to Noah, from Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, David, Jeremiah, Peter, Paul, you, me. Generations come and go, but throughout all the ages, there's one thing that's constant. One thing that's constant. These men are not holy. These men are not mighty. These names are not special They just feared God and His mercy was upon them. It's interesting that Mary mentions right in the middle of this hymn, filled with reverence and adoration, she said, He has shown might, strength with His arm. 
This all of a sudden she personalizes God as, as a God who just strokes his arm with his hands. I think of Revelation chapter 19. I want to tell you that story real quick. In Revelation chapter 19, it's the battle of Armageddon, right? It's, it's this great white horse and Jesus is on it and he has a name that only he knows. And all of the hosts of heaven, including the saints that were on earth, are, are with him dressed in white. And Jesus is on a white horse riding into this battle with Satan and the beast and the false prophet and all of those forces. And this is like the culmination of all things, the battle that ends all battle. But out of Jesus his mouth and his horse, the, the clothing dripped in blood. I mean, this is like this huge picture, right? But it's with the sword of his mouth that he speaks. Battle's over. I know that you've heard of the battle of Armageddon, like it's some bloodbath. But it's just a word that Jesus speaks and the battle's over. It's this, it's this right, it's the power of this right arm. I think of Numbers chapter 11. You don't have to turn there, but you can jot it down and go back and read it. I'll tell it really quickly. Children of Israel are, as you might imagine, complaining. God has delivered them from slavery, 400 years of slavery. It's all any of them can remember. And he's brought them, bringing them into the promised land and he's feeding them every day. Manna. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for supper. And guess what? If you get hungry through the night, you get you a good bowl of manna and buttermilk. <laughs> no, just kidding. No buttermilk. But you get you a good bowl of manna. Uh, manna, manna, manna. Everything manna. And while it probably tastes good, I can't imagine God giving them something that didn't taste good. However, they're sick of it. And they go to Moses and they said, when are we going to get something else? We want some meat. Meat, 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 meat. Right? I get it. I'm a meat guy. I want meat too. God's heard enough of it. And you know what the Lord says? He says, I'm going to give them meat. I'm going to give them meat. I'm going to give them so much meat, they're going to have meat coming out their nose. Meat coming out their nose. Not for a day, not for a week, but for a month. Nothing but meat. And here's what Moses says. God, are you going to really? I mean, it'll destroy all of our herds to feed these people meat for a month. God said, Moses. I mean, that quick, that quick, Moses had forgotten the raising of the rod and the parting of the sea. That quick, Moses had forgotten so many things, the burning bush, all of the, the plagues of Egypt. That moment, he's like, God, how are you going to do this? God said, my hand, my arm has not waxed weak. With me, all things are possible. It's the same thing that Mary says these thousand years later. God is his powerful, his powerful right hand. At Christmas, we celebrate the one who comes, not only the one who came. In Isaiah 9, we've referenced it, but for us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. 
the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When we read that, we think like, like the Jews would have, the government shall be upon his shoulders. He's going to deliver us by the time you get to the first century of these Roman oppressors. But the truth of the matter is, we, we often just like read that on top. But the government simply means the rule, like the right to rule, the right to make things right is upon his shoulder, right? To whom the Father gives the authority to reign, not just with the worldly governments, but the one who has the right to rule rightly in our life will be his responsibility. So Mary celebrates the strength of God's right arm and then she says from generation to generation he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud, the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones. I couldn't help when I read that to think of Psalm, Psalm 2. The, uh, the very beginning is verse 1 I think. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing and the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together and the, the concept here of Psalm 2 is is that the, the most important, the most powerful people on earth are getting together to decide how they're going to overthrow God's righteous right hand. Verse 4, like our best people at our best time with our best weapons. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. He scatters the proud with his arms. The Lord shall hold them in derision, the psalmist says. I know Mary knew Psalm 2. God satisfies those who hunger with good things while the wealthy are left empty. Seems, well, that's not fair. It's because God's kingdom is kind of a flip-flop kingdom, right? It's, it's, it's upside down. It's like God, give him the right to rule and to reign. And what he does is, is those who are the downtrodden are lifted up. Those who are humble, lifted up. Those who are proud, taken down. Those who have nothing, given everything. Those who have everything, given nothing. I mean, what way to destroy people who have everything more than to say to them, hey, the hungry are going to be fed But those who have everything, when they leave empty, it's not that they like didn't get anything. It's like everything they worked for is taken, meaningless. Now, God isn't opposing money. In fact, there's no verses in Scripture that would say that God is anti-money. But every one of these types of verses shows that God is opposed to self-sufficiency. The whole idea of pulling myself up by my bootstraps kind of a mindset, to be able to order your life in such a way that you can't magnify God in your soul, where you're not welling up, being overtaken by how good He has shown His face toward your lowly estate, my fear is, is that modern Christians, especially in the Western world, can't fathom a scenario where they need anything from God. This self-sufficiency is robbing us, and it forces us to amass more and more for security's sake. 
spending more on ourself for retirement. <laughs> I won't, I won't, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna try to beat us up because I'm included in that as well. But to be able to live in such a way that we need something from God. Our friend in, in Pakistan who would say to us, When's the last time you had to pray that God would provide something? Like your next meal. When did you ever have to depend upon him? He answers my prayer or I don't eat. He feels the hungry. But he sends the full away empty. Well, it reminds me of the sermon that Jesus is going to preach about Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness' sake, for they shall be filled. I wonder if Mary sang this song to Jesus when he was a baby, as a little lullaby, reminding him of what he will do, what he has done. And as Job reminds us, it's the name, it's the Lord who gives, and it's the Lord who takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's go ahead and, and wrap up. <clears throat> we see that God rules all things. We go back briefly to the Old Testament again here in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 45, 4, it says, we, Israel, my elect, I have even called you by name. I have named you, though you have not known me. And the refrain in, in Isaiah 45 is, I am the Lord, there is no other. There is no God beside me. I will gird you. Though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form the light, I create the darkness, I make peace, I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. This is the sovereign God. This is He in His, in his providence. We have this very naive view of God. We look at things through rose-colored glasses and we say, yeah, all good things come from God, God from His hand, but any problems, any suffering, any afflictions are far removed from Him. But that's not what He says. He brings peace, but He brings calamity. He feels, He empties, He heals, He hurts. I hear people say, well, God just won't answer my prayer. God always answers prayer. He doesn't not answer prayer. Just because he doesn't agree with you does not mean he's not answering. He is sovereign. He does not have to agree with you. It is we who must align in agreement. And you can't do that without magnifying him in your soul. He has helped his servant Israel, she said, in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. Again, she goes back. If you remember Psalm 103, verse 2, David cried out in this psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Our tendency as Christians is to be as strong in our faith as the recollection of our, of our last blessing. 
and we forget all the benefits. It's like we live from day to day instead of this continuity of our faith. I think of this very, very dark time in Israel's faith. And it's at this moment that that Jesus, that God announced himself to come. And inside of the downtrodden, he birthed. He overshadowed her, came into her, came from her as a blessing from generation to generation. And the angel said, God has shown favor to you, a favored one, Mary. But I see in a very spiritual parallel, and I don't want to make too much of this, but how God has made his incarnation so clear to us and his willingness to be so near to us. And then through his Holy Spirit, he overshadows us. And he comes near to us, into us, and then out from us as a blessing from generation to generation. Oh, this incarnation was something special. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The personalization, personification of God Himself. And then He replicates Himself in us. We don't become Him, but He begins to empower us. And everything that Mary has described that God has done in the past, God's consistency continues. There is a then, but there's also a now for those who fear him. And those who fear him will find mercy. This isn't just a cute story that we hear that plays a part in the nativity. This isn't just a, a cute, how did Jesus come to the earth? This is our story too. Do you not know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Let's pray together. Father, this morning I thank you that you have come to the downtrodden. You have looked upon us in our humble estate. We are not a name that we should be known. We, we recognize this morning we are not self-made. But Lord, if there are those among us who have a, a spirit, that is not in fear of you, in all of you. Or perhaps our confession only lies on our lips. It doesn't reside in our heart. Lord, I pray that this morning you would convict us through your Holy Spirit, convict us that our surrender is necessary for salvation. Lord, I pray that we would not only recognize that Jesus was birthed into this world 2,000 years ago, but we would recognize that when we are born again, we carry the same message that Mary carried everywhere we go. 
And we thank you, Lord, for your, for your life. We thank you for your obedience to the Father. Your victory in glorifying him in every word and deed. And so, Lord, I pray that as we make confession of you, it's not just our, our words that matter, it's the surrender of our heart. And Lord, we, we, are, we are so distracted. We have so many things in our life that keep us from being focused upon on your coming. Sometimes I, I fear we have a an exaggerated view of ourselves. We have a self-sufficient view of ourselves and you're just, you're just insurance for us. But Lord, this morning I pray that we remember your power, remember your righteous right arm. And it's that righteous right arm, as Isaiah also tells us, that lifts us up. So Lord, today we declare we thank you for looking at us for acknowledging us, for raising us up out of our humble estate. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Thank you for your name. I pray, Lord, that we would continue to find favor with you from generation to generation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? There's a song, uh, and I know you, you, you're well aware of it, Mary, Did You Know? Um, and uh, I've just, you know, there's lots of questions in that song. A beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, but yeah, Mary knew. Uh, if you haven't heard it, I'll just, I'll give you, I'll ruin the ending for you. She knew. Uh, and and she, she, she recognizes exactly who he is and she recognizes he's the fulfilling of prophecy and she knows all this. And when he's 12 and she loses him for three days and, and she, I mean, can you imagine that? Terrifying. I mean, she knows who he is. Terrifying. I thought you had him. I thought, how many of you ever left your kids at church? I thought you had him. <laughs> and then when they finally find him, what does Jesus say? You don't know I'd be about my father's business. And she raises him and he's under her instruction. And you get to the end of his earthly life. And she's beside herself. And she loses him for three days. I don't know where he is. And of course, I'm paraphrasing. But when he reappears, he says, Do you not know that I would be about my father's business? I want to encourage you this morning. If your confession stays here, but you're not spending time with him, and, and you've only believed, but you've not surrendered, you're missing the real story of the incarnation.
Christ in us, the hope of glory. Lord, I pray blessing over us this week as we go. I ask that you would convict us of sin. I pray that you would make known to us where there is no fear of you. Help us, Lord, to live in awe. Help us to spend time in your word so that when we are shaken, stirred, perplexed, caught off guard, that it is your word that comes out. As we speak to one another, as we pray to you, it's your words over and over. It's the culmination of the narrative that we've lived by. It's just, I pray, Lord, that that we would hide it in our heart that we might not sin against you, that we might recognize the ministry that we have, Christ in us, the hope of glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.